Welcome to Bethel World Outreach Church. Our values are devotion, diversity, and discipleship. Devotion through honoring God by trusting His Word, praying, and worshiping together. Diversity by embracing God's heart for every nation. And discipleship by helping others follow Jesus. So join us as we're reaching a city to touch the world. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Dave. I, I like to do this every now and then, even though no, most of you probably know me. Some of you do not. Uh, as you know, we have three or 4,000 people coming through here on any given month. Not everybody comes each week, but that's about how many different people are in through just this building. Uh, and we've had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of new people over the last year. So I just want to let you know me a little bit. Best way for you to know me is to know my family. So we have a picture of my family. I think we have it uh, for up on the screen. If we can put that up there, I'll be there in a second. Uh, my family, my wife, her name is Holly. Uh, we're in the middle of our third decade together. Can you believe that? Since crazy to admit. And now that I say that, you might not know which one she is. She's the one uh, holding me closest there and not letting me go. She says, now sometimes I got to compete with the kids for you. You're mine. And she chases me down. She is a, uh, she's not just my wife. She's my best friend. And yeah. That's my oldest on the right. That's Ella. She's out in Seattle studying intercultural studies. She's going to be a cross-cultural missionary. We're not sure where she's going to go yet. She's going to different nations discerning God's call. She's conversant in Spanish and has led people to Christ in Spanish multiple, led a discipleship group in Spanish with the Purple Book at her lunch group table when she was a high school senior. She's... Yeah, that, that's my girl. Uh... I never cared about weather in Seattle until she went to school there. Now I'm checking Seattle weather, watching University of Washington football. Who cares? I care now because she's out there. Uh, on the left, that's my second. That's Zoe. She's the creative writer of the family. She's the founder of Brentwood Literary Society, uh, newly founded this year. That runs what the publication that used to be the Brentwood High School newspaper and other things. She's a creative writer. She also... Uh, is the president for Everyone Human, a nonprofit that she is leading. And she runs my life outside of Bethel. All the preachers that I help around the world, she helps assist me there. She's an incredible human, often busy, quite busy herself. Uh, she's a joy to me. That's Zoe. Dawson there, he's my youngest. He's 14. He's on the freshman basketball team at Brentwood High School. He's a fitness nut. I can't keep up with him anymore. Saturday, uh, Friday was Friday. I tried to work out with him. It nearly killed me. It, it literally nearly killed me. The consequences were severe. It took me a couple hours to actually recover. I'm not kidding. It was seriously bad. <laughs> he wore me out. But uh, he's, he's also a, an incredible lover of Jesus. He is now taller than me. This picture was taken one year ago. And he's now taller than me by just a smidge, growing fast. And he's not done yet. That's my family, and I love them. So there they are. <clears throat> I have to admit something that's difficult to admit even privately, but when I look at my family like that, I have to admit it now. Publicly, it's hard to say, so uh, I'm middle-aged. <laughs> There's no way around it. Uh, Zo Ella turned 19 Friday. Uh, Zoe's going to turn 18 at her ne next birthday. I'll have two young adults and a teenager. What? What just happened? I'm middle-aged. 
So if you think I'm old, it's because you're young. That's a wonderful thing to be, glad you're young. But if you think I'm young, I'm sorry, but you're old. I know, I'm I'm watching a little bit, that's just what it is. Uh, I'm middle-aged, that's the fact of it. And I've read quite a few books over the last few years about middle age and what it means to go through all these phases of life. I've read uh, stages of a man's life, stages of a woman's life, several other books. And I'm a pastor. I had to go through pastoral counseling courses, went through all the stages of life and pastoral counseling courses. You know what they tell you, what they tell you about middle age? <laughs> I, can, I can summarize it in one word. The single most defining emotion of being middle-aged is disappointed. This is what it is. Now, when you go through middle age and you handle it well, you restructure your life in one way, shape, or form, or another in a way that's better fitting to your values or better equipped to help you through the next season of your life. When you don't go through it well, your disappointment leads to disillusionment, leads to despair. And in midlife, we call that a... There it is, a midlife crisis coming to a theater near you. So when people go through that midlife crisis, all kinds of weird things happen. They spend money where they shouldn't spend money. They buy things they don't need. Guys start unbuttoning their shirts farther than they should. It just happens. We don't need to see your chest lettuce. We don't want to see it. This is not helping us. I love you. It's just one more button up, please. Thank you. Uh, it, it can go worse than that, though. All kinds of substances can start to happen. Affairs can take place. Illegal activity can occur. Sometimes self-destructive behavior, self-sabotage, even suicide. That's a midlife crisis. The number one characterizing feature of my time of life, hip, hip, hooray, disappointed. <laughs> Thought you came to church to be encouraged, right? Now, if you're 17, then you're saying, what does this have to do with me? Well, simple. That's where you're headed. Now, if you're 70 and you're saying, I made it through that just fine, Dave, I I don't need to hear about that today. Well, the disease that causes the disappointment in midlife is the same disease that arises with different symptoms in the golden years. Why are we so disappointed? And by the way, psychologists tell us that it is pretty much universal. You can shove it down and act like you're just fine. Oh, you want. Why are we so disappointed? If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew is the first gospel in the New Testament. It's about two-thirds of the way, really almost exactly two-thirds of the way through your Bible. You can turn it there. I love it if you bring your physical Bibles to church. helps you stay focused. It'll be on the screen as well. Pastor James had a powerful sermon last week starting us on this series, Jesus on Money. In Matthew chapter 6, we have some of the central teachings about Jesus. We're going to focus really closely on three verses and bounce around in that chapter for the rest of the time. Why do we talk about Jesus on money? Well, not only did Jesus talk about money, let me just tell you this. The world is talking to you about your money all the time. Every single ad you see, every commercial you watch, every video that you have to endure until you can stream just a little bit more of your show, every billboard that you drive by, every pop-up that jumps up in front of you is either directly or indirectly trying to get you to do something with your money, right? 
And the world is giving you subconscious and conscious, direct and indirect statements about your money all the time. At church, we just like to not hide it. We're just going to be direct because that's the way Jesus was. When he talked about money, he seemed to be pretty serious for some reason. And I think it's connected to why we're so disappointed. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 19, if you want to scroll down to that or put your finger on it, verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth, neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in And steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That is the direct word of our Lord. That's Jesus' words. Over the course of this next week, I just want to encourage you, at your family table, in your devotions at night or in the morning, get a note card, get a post-it note, stick it up somewhere, try to memorize those three verses, verses 19 through 21. They will seem very simple at first, but the more you meditate on them, the more layers will appear. I don't have time just to deal with those three verses. They're so rich. There's more there. Encourage you to memorize it. Jesus starts out by saying what we shouldn't do in in a way clearing the ground so that he can tell us what to do and then why he wants us to do it. So we got to spend some time for a minute clearing the ground if we're going to understand why we're so disappointed and why, how we get out of that disappointment. He says, don't lay up your treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. Now, uh, in the ancient world, if you wanted to store up wealth, there were, only, there were only a certain number of ways to do it. There was no national bank, there was no Fed, there was no secured banking account. It was a little more difficult to store up your wealth. Coinage was cumbersome, it was difficult, and it was space-consuming, coinage being actual coins, actual money. One of the ways you could store it up was their version of what we now call a non-fungible treasure. Have you ever heard of a non-fungible treasure? Any of you money geeks in the room? So that's fine art, things like that. Things that are priceless or priced because of their rareness. They're rare, they're scarce, and their uniqueness. Well, cloth was a non-fungible treasure back then. You didn't have TJ Maxx here and uh, Banana Republic over there and whatever your favorite stores over there and Urban Outfitters or whatever else it is that you love. After you name all of your favorite clothing stores... I bet we could name 25 more that most of us would recognize the name of, and we wouldn't be done naming them yet. We have so many options for purchasing clothes. What's What's the value of a cloth? Well, back then, there was only one or two vendors nearby you that were selling cloth, and there was only so many versions of that cloth that you could buy. And for the most part, it was pretty drab colors. If you wanted blue or purple or scarlet, something like that, you had to get it from far away. Somebody actually had to get that dye somewhere else. Lydia in the New Testament made all of her wealth, and she was wealthy, by dealing in purple cloth 
probably died from snails she gathered in her hometown of Thyatira. Imagine how many snails you have to gather to dye enough cloth to make your living off of it. In other words, those precious cloths were a more efficient way of storing your wealth than coins. Because nobody had that. And if you dressed like that, wore that, you were royalty. You would pay more for that than you would for the ancient version of a vehicle, a donkey or a horse. So imagine having an outfit that's worth more than your car. Now you know what we're talking about. Stack those all up in a big chest so that you can take care of them. Line it with cedar. And the, but the greatest enemy of those cloths is the moth. The moth can sneak in through the tiniest of cracks, no matter how you try to keep it out. The cedar, it doesn't like the cedar, but it will worm its way in to the center of that chest, lay its eggs on your cloth in the middle of the chest, the larva hatch, and while you're not watching, it eats little holes in your value. Now, if you weren't storing cloth or you didn't have a way of storing cloth or you bought all the cloth you had, could and you still had more wealth, uh, there weren't very many people who knew how to work metal well. Some people could work metal a little bit, but to work it well and to make it beautiful, that was a valuable thing. So swords were valuable, breastplates were valuable, helmets were valuable, bucklers were valuable, metal serving dishes were valuable because they would last longer and they would be more beautiful. And the greatest enemy of metal is... Rust is still the greatest enemy of a classic car collector who is storing up treasures in the value of classic cars, which have outpaced gold, by the way, over the last 20 years, unless they're touched by rust. So Jesus is saying that these things that we're trying to store up with treasure are actually being consumed. The literal word for rust there is actually eating. So some of your translations translate it vermin, mouse. Some of it translate uh, that worm. So those are things that eat, consume. The entire world is actually eating itself all the time. The natural created order is eating itself, consuming itself, and recycling itself all the time. Everything you have on this earth is currently decaying. You know, no new house has a mold problem. Every old house seems to. No new, new house has a mouse problem. Most old houses do. So if you've built a new house, it's already on its way to mold and mice. Merry Christmas. There's a little mouse trap next to a little hole in my little townhouse in a closet that my wife wants to forget is there. Eating. That's what's happening to your stuff. Now, if you're smart, you're thinking, yeah, but I'm just going to store it then in something that doesn't rust and something that you can't eat and that won't get consumed, precious metals and gems. It's the same now as it might be then, and you're thinking, oh, I'm going to invest in gold and all of that. That's when Jesus still has you, where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Let's say you went and bought a gold bar after church today. I heard Pastor Dave. I think the point of that message was to not invest in stuff that can rust. So I'm going to go out and buy a gold bar and put it underneath the floorboards of my house where nobody else knows it's there. Then you let that slip to a friend of yours over coffee this week. What are you going to start thinking about? 
Now that friend knows where your gold is. And that's worth a lot of money. Have you checked the spot price of gold, spot price of gold lately, have you? Anybody? You're going to stop worrying about it being stolen. Actually, if you invest in gold, you're probably paying someone to protect it. So by paying them to protect it, you're degrading into the value of that gold. Just like you had to do back then, you had to pay a strong man. And you had to pay for that value out of the wealth that you had. In other words, your possessions are no longer protecting you. You're protecting them. And then if you think about it, think about every famous and wealthy person on this current earth, what do they have with them at all times? A security detail, an extremely expensive bodyguard, because the more you have, the more dangerous your life has become. What? Jesus, in a few very simple words, is pointing to why we're so disappointed. Let me give you a few of those as we clear the ground. Possessions cannot fulfill you. Possessions cannot fulfill you because they're already being consumed. They're already being degraded. And it's not what you're built for anyway. Ecclesiastes tells us that eternity has been set in the heart of humanity. Therefore, anything temporary does not satisfy the heart of humanity. Possessions cannot fulfill you. Possessions also cannot protect you. Possessions can't fulfill you, they can't protect you. Steve Jobs, at the end of his life, said he chased money his entire life. If he had it to do again, he would do it differently. One of the most successful people, do you realize how much value is in the company of Apple? One of the most successful people of his generation, at the end of his life, felt empty. Go a different direction, Bob Marley. Bob Marley, you know, every little thing is going to be all right. Come on. A few of you like Nobody likes, I got seven people like Bob Marley, and I know we're not supposed to do that. I kind of like that song, because Bob Marley laying in his deathbed in his hospital told his son, wealth can't buy your health. Money can't buy your health. He was getting the best health services money could buy, and dying Anyway, your possessions can't fulfill you. Your possessions can't protect you. But Dave, that's what everybody's chasing. Everybody's after the money, money, money. That mean, mean green, right? Some people got to have it. Some people really need it. Money, money, money. That's what everybody's after, Pastor Dave. What are you talking about? What are we supposed to do? Well, Jesus is trying to lead us in a different direction. He's trying to show us what our hearts are actually longing for. Your heart is looking for something that will last. If eternity is woven into the fiber of your emotional being, having something that will endure is woven into your deepest longings. You long for security because you're supposed to have it. You long for fulfillment because you're supposed to have it. You long for something that will last because you're supposed to have it. You long for something that's that's going to endure because that's the way God made you. Your heart is longing for something that will last and the world is dead 
after day, hour after hour, minute after minute, working hard, double overtime to convince you to get things that won't last. And until we clear the ground of that, until we realize that the whole world's gone mad in the direction of something that won't make it happy, we'll end up disappointed too. I'm promising you, you will. So what do we do? Jesus in the next verse, verse 20, says, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and thieves don't break in and steal. That's the one that gets your gold and your gems even though uh, uh, rust and moth don't take care of your stuff. A thief eventually eventually will. Jesus says lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. Well, how do you do that? I used to think this was like a, some sort of financial, spiritual, mechanical, calculus kind of deal, you know? So elsewhere, Jesus says that whatever you've given up for me, he'll give you 30, 60, 100 fold in this life and in the life to come. Do you know that verse? Some of you do, some of you don't, it's fine. He says that, so I used to run that math. I like to run math sometimes. And so I would think if I had $100 and I could spend it on something that won't last, if I invest it somehow in the kingdom, if I give it to the kingdom, then instead of burning through my money, $100 here, fast and furious, I'll put it there and it's you know, $3,000, $6,000, $10,000, but that $10,000, that's going to last forever. Now that's pretty cool. So I started working that calculus to help motivate myself to do something different with my time and my money and my possessions and everything else until I eventually realized that's not really exactly how it works. Now I think that helped me mature a little bit in my faith and and, and unclench my fingers from my cash. But Jesus says something different in his teaching. It's not a mechanical calculus. In Matthew 25, lots of people start telling him all the good things they did to lay up treasures in heaven. And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. Bethel, we have several congregations, as you know. We have one in Clarksville, one in Murfreesboro, one in Dixon, one here, etc., That's a lot of stuff we deal with, a lot of employees, a lot of financial issues. Because of that, it's pretty important for us that we know our bank and our bank knows us. So we're not confused about who our bank is. We know who our bank is, but most of us don't mention the name of the bank. If we're going to talk about our bank, we talk about Dennis. Because Dennis is the one who's the manager at the bank who knows us and we know him. He trusts us. We trust him. We're not on a last name basis. We're on a first name basis with Dennis. Because even though there's an owner of that bank and all of that money, there's someone through whom we have to go if we ever need to access it. We want him to trust us and we need to trust him. His name is Dennis. Now, in this world, we could go find somebody else not named Dennis who works at a bank. We could find somebody else not named Dennis, Sarah or Jada or whatever else who's managing some other bank. But in heaven, the Father owns it all. Metaphorically, there's one banker in heaven. And Jesus says, no one gets to the Father except through me. He says that he's the gate. He says that he's the door. He says that he's the way. He's the truth, the life. He uses the a lot when he talks about himself. So in other words, it's not a mechanical calculus. It's a relational calculus. And you can stack up all the works that you want. It won't get you anything in heaven if he doesn't know you 
and you don't know him, and the only way Jesus lets you know him is a four-letter word. L-O-R-D. Lord. In my Purple Book group this week with a bunch of freshman guys, I just asked them, what do you think the word Lord means? They said, king, commander, owner, ruler, master. I said, that sounds exactly right. Is that what he is to you? Is he king? Is he master? Is he owner of everything you? Until then, there's only one dentist. His name is Jesus. And it doesn't matter all the good works you've tried to do. They don't get you there. There's no transfer. So number one, make Jesus your greatest treasure. Now, if you're still thinking that possessions can fulfill you and possessions that will protect you, then me telling you this won't make any sense at all. But if you've cleared the ground and if the Spirit is working in your life in that way and you're able to receive it, you might be able to move into this. Make Jesus your greatest treasure. It's not about stuff here, actually, or there. I don't think you're going to care about golden streets. I don't think you're going to care about a pearly gate. I don't think you're going to care about a topaz foundation or gems in your crown. You know what we do when we get that crown? <laughs> you just throw it right down on his feet and say, what's this compared to you? And I didn't earn it. I don't deserve it. But you gave yourself away. I'll give you anything. Make Jesus your greatest treasure. He lasts. Next, use temporary stuff to gain eternal reward. Isn't that the heartbeat of this verse? Verse 20, lay up for yourselves eternal treasures in heaven. And Pastor James talked about this some last week, and we got to hit it again. Lay up for yourselves eternal treasures. Use all this temporary stuff to gain something permanent. If you did use cash here to invest in something more long-lasting, like a, a retirement account, that's a good thing. Don't hear us wrong today. The scripture says that a wise person leaves an inheritance for his children, his children, children. Don't think it's bad to save for retirement. Don't think it's wrong for you to have an emergency fund. Go read Proverbs chapter 6 about the ant. You should store up for a rainy day. But if that's where your treasure is, if that's where your hope is, something's mistaken, something's wrong. Lay up for yourselves treasures there all the more than you do here. Now, how do you do that, though? Remember, it's got to be relational. It's out of love for Jesus. But in this chapter, he gives us three things that, that kind of fall under number two. Let me give them to you briefly. First is just your time. Earlier in the chapter, verses 5 through 18, he talks about fasting and prayer. Fasting is a way of giving up the time we give to food and the satisfaction we take from food to being with the Lord. Prayer is a way of giving up time that we would spend on chasing the things of this world to chasing our relationship with Jesus. Fasting and prayer then is a way relationally of placing our treasure there, our satisfaction and fulfillment there, not here. The next is our money. 
In the first part of the chapter, Jesus talks about giving money to the poor, but not doing it so that you can be seen or that someone's going to be amazed with you, not letting your left hand know what your right hand doing when you're giving to the poor. You don't want any fanfare, then you won't get your reward in heaven. The Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you, he says. So we want to do things so almost accidentally we forget we're doing anything special because we became so habitually in love with Jesus and we know the best way to love Jesus is to do things for those he loves and he cares about people who are suffering. We're doing it for Jesus. We don't expect any reward. Now remember, wages are what you earn. Reward is what's given. The only wages we get, the wages of sin, is death. The reward we receive, which we could not earn, is eternal life. So even then, we won't feel like we've earned it. Time, money, presence. Matthew 25 is all about, when he says, come into my rest or depart from me because I never knew you, it's all about ways of being present with the least of these. I was in prison, you came and saw me. I was sick, you came and took care of me. I was hungry, you came and handed me food. I was naked, you came and put a cloak over my shoulders, you clothed me. And then we would say, when did we ever see you, Jesus? And he says, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. Now with your money, that's the money thing. That's the check thing, it's not wrong to give, but that's not the same thing as presents. Don't act like you're doing anything for the poor just because you wrote a check. Writing a check is a good thing, it's not wrong, but you don't have the presence he's asking for, which changes you, by the way, as much as it changes anybody else. Whenever I meet somebody who says they really want to be good news to the poor, I say, well great, tell me how they smell. If you've ministered to the homeless, if you minister to those who are in deep poverty, you, you aren't offended by that. You know it's true. Because in deepest poverty, the smell is easy to describe. It's urine and smoke or booze or body odor and drugs. And when you walk up to a door like many of you did these last two weeks and knock on a door and a nine-year-old boy comes out and the smell is rolling out from behind him, and you tell him you have something that's going to be really fun and free and great for him and great for his whole family, and you're handing him a little thing, promising him great stuff, and there behind him is the adult with the drugs in their hand, strung out, bloodshot eyes on the chair. You know that child didn't choose that situation, but it is their situation. And if you're paying attention enough, you realize that the person in the chair probably didn't choose their situation either. They just got disappointed until they became disillusioned and reached despair. In other words, they're heading the same place as I would be heading if I was trying to find satisfaction in this life. They're the same as me. And when I love them, I'm loving me. When we work that relational calculus out of love for Jesus Christ, not only are we fulfilled in this life, I promise you people who went out knocking on doors Saturday felt more fulfilled by the end than they did at the beginning. 
Not only are we more fulfilled in this life, our fulfillment is waiting for us there. And the closer we get to death, the more hope we have, not the less. And where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. Number three, seek lasting things and your satisfaction will last. Now that's just good old common sense. (laughs) It's just not so common. Seek lasting things and your satisfaction then will last. A few years back, I was living in Denver, Colorado, and I flew into Baltimore. I'd only lived in Denver for a couple years, but one of those times I was speaking in Baltimore, I flew into an airport, got out of the airport, got into a rental car, and there's a sign on the road, I think we have a picture of it, that was one of the first things I saw on I-70 near its terminus in the east. So here's a road sign right after you get off the airport, and it's Columbus and St. Louis, and for some reason, then Denver. <laughs> you know, it's showing you the scope of this highway, basically. It struck me, like, there, I just came from Denver, and there it is, Denver, 1,700 miles. A few hour flight, but if I wanted to go back, it'd take me two days to drive. Just keep driving this way. As I was driving on that road, I noticed these dashed lines, which are six to 10 feet long and about 30 feet in between. And as I was driving past them, I was, was kind of, this is just one of those things that happens in Dave's mind. This is Dave's little crazy world. I like to figure stuff out while I should be focusing on driving. So there I am wondering how many of those little lines must be going by as I drove past them. If I was going to go all the way to Denver, how many would it be? So I started snapping my finger with each one that went by. Trying to count how many in a minute it would be, and then I was going to multiply out how, by the, you know, how many miles it was taking, da, 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 try to figure out how many lines, and then I was going to multiply that by how long they were to see how much paint it must have taken to paint in between. I don't know why I do this stuff. Holly says, when you die, Dave, it's going to be Dave, run the numbers ward. That's what we're going to put on your little gravestone. I just love doing that kind of stuff. I don't know why. It's just fascinating to me. So there I am trying to figure it out. I get back to the hotel. I didn't know how long the lines were. I looked it up online, six to 10 feet long. Really? No. No way, no way. They're like two or three feet. There's no way. <laughs> Went outside, looked at it, did what I shouldn't do, and it, I did. And they are. They're six to ten feet long. They did a study of this. I found out that there's a study of this that people consistently think they're two feet long when they're actually six to ten feet long, and they also think the space in between is just as long as the white line. So it messes with your perspective, right? As I was thinking about that in a hotel, it finally hit me. And changed my life forever. The line, six to ten feet long, that's like life size. Because I'd actually laid down by one of those white lines. That's, I know, I'm dumb. That's life size. If that was the dash on my coming gravestone, the distance between my birthday and my death day, which is already ordained, so I'm not worried. If that was my life, and I could start in Baltimore, and every time I snapped, it was more than one life. And by the time I got to Denver, it wouldn't be the first tenth of eternity.
if you let that reality settle all the way into your heart, your heart won't be the same. If you're 17, don't you remember when summer seemed to be just a long golden period that almost would never end? When you were five or six, it seemed like summer just stretched out forever. How come we're already back in school and they're torturing us again? If you're a little bit older, didn't a month seem like it lasted more than a week? Just a little while ago? If you're really advanced, didn't it seem like it used to be that a year actually had some tenure to it? Now it seems like next year is already on the heels of this year, giving it a flat tire before it's even begun? In other words, the longer you live, the faster times goes. How quick will this life seem when you're 10,000 years old? How minor will any sacrifice you made in this life seem when you're 30,000 years old? What will this life seem like to you when a million years are past? Question. Would you suffer for a blink to guarantee a lifetime? And if you did, Would you think it was worth it? (laughs) Jesus is the only lasting thing. And he's only the only way to all other lasting things. When he asks for your life, it's not to take it. It's to help you find it. Would you stand with me? I just want you to take a personal moment with the Lord. Bow your heads, close your eyes. I just want you to take a personal moment with him. If that's new to you, he can speak to you in the thoughts of your mind and the inclinations of your heart. Scripture says he knows every word in your thoughts before they even make it to your lips. He's already been speaking to you, recognize it or not. If you would say, Davis, you've been talking about this, I've been realizing Jesus isn't my L-O-R-D. You can be in church all your life and not make him Lord. You can get baptized and hold your wallet out of the water. No condemnation from me, trust me, zero. I was right where you're at. But if you would say, Jesus isn't my Lord, but I can tell I'm heading towards disappointment. I don't want to end up there. I want him to be my Lord. Every head bowed, every eyes closed, just you and me. All I want you to do is slip your hand up to him and say, I need you to be my Lord. Yeah, I see you. Anybody else slip your hand up all over? Yep. In the back, all the way down to the front? Yeah, goodness sakes. Yeah. Yeah. Anyone else? Let him speak to you. You let everyone else speak to you. He's the only one who actually cares about your well-being and nothing else. Just pray to him if you raised your hand or if you didn't and you know you need to make that commitment. Say, Lord Jesus, I want that phrase to be true. I want you to be my Lord, my master. I want you to own everything about me and I want you to be in charge. I'm so sorry for the sins that I've committed. 
have mercy on me and forgive me. I don't want just my money to be yours. I want my time to be yours. I want my inclinations to be yours. I want my life to be yours. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Save me. I believe you died for me. I believe you were raised from the dead. And I want to live with you forever. Now help me know that I know that I know that I'm saved. If you still got your hands up, you can put them down. He's already working in your heart and life. He's already changing things. He's already changing eternity for you in one of the most beautiful, unimaginable ways. It's going to unfold in front of you in ways. I envy you. That new and fresh and joyous feeling. But you know what? It's never grown old on me yet. Ask Pastor Will and Shane and Kristen as they watch me worship. It's never grown old, has it? It never will. Welcome to the family.